Turn your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter number 38. Genesis chapter 38. And I'm thrilled that you're here with us today. Uh, I'm mostly thrilled the Lord's here with us. You and I could be here today and that not, not mean much, but with the Lord here today, surely great things can happen. Genesis chapter number 38. Now, I'd like to read a story about an episode in the life of one of the sons of Jacob by the name of Judah. Genesis chapter number 38. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Genesis chapter 38, verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned in to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hera. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went in unto her. And she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bare a son, and called his name Shelah. And he was at Kezib when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord slew him. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. What a blessing it is. Lord, I've already been encouraged in this place. Lord, I've, I've already enjoyed myself more here than I would have at a ball game, than I would have at a theme park, than I would have at the lake or in a tree stand. Lord, you've already just blessed my heart. You've already made this well worth the time that we've invested. But Lord, we know that you're not done. You're just beginning. The work you want to do in us, Lord, is still yet to pass. So I pray that you'd help us this morning as we set and fix our hearts upon you, that we would allow you and permit you to do a work in us. We know, Lord, that we can stop you from working in us with a bad attitude, with bitterness, with with petulance. But, Lord, I don't want to do that. I want to let you work in my heart and in my mind this morning. And I pray that you would work in our midst. Lord, I don't know the heart's condition of any person here, but you know every person's heart. And so... If there's one that is lost and undone, they don't know Christ, uh, they have no relationship with you. If they died, they'd die in their sins and go to hell. Lord, I pray that you'd show them that desperate need. Lord, I pray they not leave here before they've called upon you and been gloriously born again. Lord, I love you. I thank you for loving us. Thank you for being a precious and a trustworthy God. Help us to trust you day by day. Bless this time together, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter number 38 details to us one of the most lengthy episodes in the life of Judah, who is the fourth born son of Leah, the wife of Jacob. Now, we've not read the entirety of the text that we're going to read this morning. We're going to read most of the passage in due course as we're preaching. But I wanted to just frame and introduce this man by the name of Judah we'll find that in this man's life there is a theme that seems to be set forward, and I want us to consider it this morning. The first time we're introduced to him in Scripture is in Genesis chapter number 29. Let me read a few verses for you. Uh, Jacob has married both Leah and Rachel, and he begins to bear children uh, by Leah. 
And the Bible says in verse 32 that Leah conceived and bare a son. And she called his name Reuben. That name means behold a son. For she said, surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. If you remember and you're a student of your Bible, you'll know that it was not a happy home uh, that Jacob and Leah and Rachel were in. I've had people ask me sometimes about polygamy in the Bible. And, and they'll say, preacher, did God sanction polygamy in the Bible. No, he never sanctioned polygamy in the Bible. You'll find that every time that a man had more than one wife in the Bible, it always led to heartache, always led to suffering, always led to misery. You say, preacher, why is that? Because invariably, uh, rather than keeping both of them happy, he couldn't keep either of them happy. Somebody say amen to that. And so it's always a miserable experience, and their home was was no different. And we find that Jacob loved Rachel And the Bible says he did not love Leah. Now, that doesn't mean that he was altogether cruel, although I'm sure it was a difficult home to live in. But it means that Rachel was the apple of his eye, and Leah was sort of disregarded and set aside and dismissed. Now, all that was true until Rachel was unable to have children and Leah was able to have children. And you find this interesting development in their home. It's not that Jacob loved Leah anymore because she gave him children, but Leah seems to be consistently holding out hope that the next child born will cause Jacob to love her and uh, to uh, behold her as the apple of his eye. And so when she has Reuben, she says, behold a son. And no doubt she presented that little boy to Jacob and said, I've, I've born you a son. I've, I've brought you a son. Now will you love me? But you know, the reality is it didn't make Jacob love her anymore. Verse 33 says, She conceived again and bare a son, and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, which means heard or listened to. She said, Maybe my husband won't listen to me, but my God is listening to me. And she prayed and sought the Lord, and God blessed her with another child. Verse 34 says, She conceived again and bare a son, and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi, which means joined together. And by the way, Levi may have not joined uh, Leah to Jacob, but for a lot of generations, the Levites would do part in interceding between mankind and between God. You know, sometimes the things that we expect God to do, he doesn't do. He does something a lot better than we ever imagined he'd do. And that's what he does through this boy, Levi. And so he, she's hoping, she's begging God, she's pleading, but something changes after Levi. I don't know if she gave up hope. I, I like to think rather that she changed where she placed her hope. Because she has a fourth son. She conceived again, verse 35 says, and bare a son. And she said this, I like this, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and left Bearing. You know what Leah did? She said, I'm going to quit waiting on people to give me a reason to praise the Lord, and I'm going to praise God for the reasons He gave me to praise the Lord. Uh, well, listen, we're coming into this Thanksgiving season. I love Thanksgiving. It is my favorite holiday. I resent all you Christmas lovers for trying to steal it from me. Amen? I love Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday. And one of the reasons I love it is because it is a time and season that is focused on gratitude, thankfulness, and on praise. 
You know, during this Thanksgiving season, you'll praise God a lot more if you'll quit trying to look to men to give you a reason to praise God and instead start to look into God to give you a reason to praise Him. You'll find there is no shortage of reasons to praise the Lord. So we find in this passage that Judah is a source of praise. She says, I'm just going to go ahead and praise God because of the son that she has, uh, that he has given me. But we find that Judah is not only a source of praise, but praise begins to characterize his entire life. Remember what she names him. Therefore, she called his name Judah. And in fact, that name means praise, praising Jehovah. Judah, she named him praise. She named him after this action of praising God and left bearing. So we could say about Judah that he is a source of praise. But we could also say he is a son of praise. Literally, his whole life, every time that Judah got in trouble, he heard his mama say, praise the Lord. Amen? Uh, every time that he got in trouble, he heard that name praise over and over again. When it was supper time, he called out, his name was called out, and praise he was reminded of. Every time his friends called his name, he was reminded of praising the Lord. He is a son of praise. He is well acquainted with praise. But as is the case with all of Jacob's sons, we find that their uh, names that were given them were both dispensational and dispositional. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, I mean this. Not only was God saying something that characterized them as a person, but they would also go on to in many ways foreshadow the functions that these various uh, descendants of these boys, when they became tribes in Israel, would serve in the land of Israel. Did you know whenever the children of Israel went forth to battle, the first tribe went forth was Judah. When they conquered the land, the first ones that led them forth was Judah. You know why that is? Because praise always goes before victory. Praise doesn't just follow victory. Praise goes before victory. And you'll find that not only was Judah a source of praise and a son of praise, but in the Bible, in many ways, he is a symbol of praise. Whenever uh, Jacob is dying and is blessing uh, his sons, he says this, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. And over and over again in the Bible, you find Judah, both as an individual and the tribe of Judah, associated with the concept of praise. Hey, by the way, one day there's going to be another son of Judah, there's going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah that will sit upon a throne and he will be eternally praised. And here's what's interesting to me when I read my Bible. I find that though there are some good things said about Judah in the early days of his life, and though there are some pretty good things that are said about him in the later days of his life, our text this morning in Genesis 38 is not a very praiseworthy picture of this man named Judah. We've only read a few verses leading up to some of the most shameful behavior that we'll behold in all the pages of the Word of God. It's interesting to think that if you removed chapter 38 from your Bible, you'd probably think Judah is a pretty good fellow. You'd go through your Bible, you'd see him. He had a part, of course, in betraying uh, his uh, brother, uh, Joseph. All of the brethren did. But, you know, depending on your perspective, Judah is actually the reason they didn't slay him and leave him in that pit, but rather that he was lifted out of that pit and sold into slavery. Depending on your perspective, you might say, well, maybe that is, is showing some tenderness in his heart. 
And you'd find later on that he is a vocal individual in seeing their family restored back to fellowship with the brother that they had wronged. In fact, if you remove chapter 38, you'd think this fellow Judah is probably worthy of the name praise. There's much praise to be given unto him. And yet my inspired, infallible, and errant Bible does not leave out chapter 38. It instead, the Holy Ghost goes out of his way to draw our attention to one of the most shameful and one of the most disreputable behaviors and actions in all of the Word of God. Here's how maybe we'd say this. If Judah is a picture of praise, and if his story in the Bible is a testimony of praise, then chapter 38 serves as a stain on his praise. We're going, as we already said, into this Thanksgiving season. And I hope this is true for you in July. I hope it's true for you in February. I hope it's true for you in September that you're always praising God. But undoubtedly, we give a special focus to this activity of praise, of rendering worship unto the Lord, of speaking of His goodness, of speaking of His glory, of speaking of His faithfulness in our life. And when I read this passage of Scripture, I'm reminded that though we may praise the Lord, there are certain things that can stain our praise. We might be lifting Him up, but what hands are we lifting Him with? We might be speaking His name, but what lips are we speaking it with? We might be standing and rejoicing, but what legs are we standing with? You see, everything in life has context. And when we read this story about Judah, we find that the sad reality is a man whose life could have almost in an unmitigated way been a testimony to praise is instead blighted and blemished and stained by the behavior in this passage. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning, a stain on your praise. And I want to show you three things in this passage that I believe can blemish or stain your praise and that are a bad testimony to our good testimony that we often give unto the Lord. Now, as we've read this passage of Scripture, it opens with Judah going, uh, staying with a man by the name of Hira, the Adulamite, and taking a bride, a wife. We are never told her name. We're told her father's name, uh, Shua, but we are never told her name. But Judah takes this woman to be his wife, and she begins to bear children. And, and, and she has these sons unto him, Ur and, and Onan and, and Shelah. Well, the Bible tells me that Judah takes a wife unto Ur, his uh, oldest, his firstborn, by the name of Tamar. Because of uh, Ur's wickedness, God slays uh, Ur, and, and instead Tamar is left a widow. Then, as was custom and would later be sort of galvanized in the word of God, uh, she was given unto uh, his uh, younger brother, Onan, uh, to bear as a wife and to raise up seed. If you studied your Bible, you know that Onan was unwilling to do that. He refused to bear up seed under his brother's name. And so God slays him for his wickedness likewise. And the Bible tells me in verse 11, that uh, Judah then makes a promise to Tamar concerning his youngest son by the name of Shelah. Notice it with me. Look at verse 11. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house, till Shelah my son be grown. For he said, lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. 
And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath. For she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. Now, we'll go deeper into our text here in a few moments. Tamar is going to uh, perform a deception upon Judah and is going to actually lie with Judah and bear a child by Judah. And we'll look at that here in a moment. But all of this she does because she has come to realize that despite Judah's fervent promises, she is never going to be married again. He is not going to keep his word. He is not going to give Sheila to be her husband and has instead lied to her, deceived her and kept her in perpetual widowhood. I don't know about you, and I'm certainly not making excuses for anything Tamar has done. You say, preacher, this is a complicated passage. Yes, sin is complicated. You let sin in your life, it gets complicated. And it's a complicated passage. I'm not here to call balls and strikes about this passage, but I am here to note something that Judah does wrong. This doesn't excuse Tamar, but it all begins when Judah lies to her about his intentions. Let me say number one this morning, dishonesty is a stain on your praise. You see, people don't care how much you talk about the Lord if you turn around and tell lies out the other side of your mouth. People are uninterested in your opinion about God if your behavior is such that you give them reason to doubt whether you tell the truth in the first place. Consider the certainty of his words in verse 11. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow at thy father's house till Sheila, my son, be grown. Now, I don't know about you, and maybe he would have suggested there was some wiggle room that he never actually said he was going to give his uh, son to her as a husband. But it's apparent to both him and to Tamar and to everyone around that he was implying in this, I promise you, when the day comes, I will give you a son and give you a husband. In other words, he was promising that she'd be seen to. It's interesting that he commands her to go back to her father's house. What he's saying is you can't take care of yourself. And normally you would go and you would marry a husband and you would move on. But rather than permitting her to do that, he keeps her on the line, so to speak, and tells her in no uncertain terms, if you'll trust me, I promise you'll be well taken care of. But I want you to notice the duplicity of his words at the end of verse 11. For he said lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now, there's sort of two ways we could understand that last phrase in verse 11. And I'll tell you what one opinion is, and then I'll tell you my right opinion. (laughs) One perspective is what he could be saying is, let's not go through the trouble of marrying you to him, because after all, he might just die anyway. It's possible that's what he meant, although I would suggest this, that no man is promised another day. No man is promised tomorrow. And certainly I don't think that would have been a satisfactory answer when he says, lest peradventure he die also. I think rather when it says he said this, it's not saying he said this to Tamar. It's saying he said this within himself. Here's what Judah knows. He knows that he has had two sons married to this woman, and both of them have wound up dead. 
rather than recognizing that for both of them it was due to their wickedness and not due to any maliciousness or ill feelings or ill behavior on Tamar's behalf. It seems to suggest to me that he does not trust her, so he is couching his words and he is doing something to forestall and delay this until Sheila can be of an age to look after himself because he does not trust her with his care. In other words, he was saying one thing, but he meant another thing. You know, a lot of what has broken our country is people. It's not people saying one thing and doing another thing. It's people saying one thing and meaning another thing. You know, we are commanded and called to a life of honesty, and we can't always help how people interpret and understand what we say. But there's a lot we can do to make sure that we are living a life of, I'm going to use this word, forthrightness. And I will tell you that the lost world watches carefully how you live and how you behave. If they see you as a slick, sly person that's always trying to worm your way out of responsibilities, that's always trying to worm your way out of obligations, that's always trying to find some legality and some loophole whereby you can nullify whatever obligations and promises that you made, guess what? That has a sum total effect on their opinion about you. It ought to be said about the children of God that nobody loves truth more than a Christian loves truth. It ought to be said about you and I that nobody is more honest than a believer is honest. And it ought to be that When people hear our testimony, they don't doubt the veracity. They don't doubt the truth of it because they know us to be truthful people. I remember hearing a story once years ago. A preacher friend of mine was riding actually on a bus trip. That's how old he was. Amen. And he was riding on a, a like a Greyhound bus trip. And he was on this trip for about 8, 12 hours. I can't remember exactly how long. But he was a young man at the time. And he was seated next to somebody. And he began to witness to this man. And for however long it was, 8, 10, 12 hours, he witnessed relentlessly to this man and tried to win this man to Christ. And he said at the end of that period of time that the man looked at him, I've never forgot this when it was told to me. He said the man looked at him, and this is what he said. He said, I don't believe what you've told me, but I have no doubt that you believe what you told me. Can I tell you this? We can't make a lost and dying world believe us, but we and we alone can make sure they believe that we believe us. And if we allow dishonesty and deception to be intermingled with our life, it should not surprise us when the world gives no currency to the things that we say. You very much, you can't make lost people take you at your word, but you can make sure they have no reason not to take you at your word. And you can live a life upright and above reproach before them. I'd say, number one, man, dishonesty is a stain on your praise. And here's a sad thing we have to say about Judah. Whatever else was good about him, he was a liar. He was a dishonest man, at least in this passage. I'm glad I'm not characterized by my worst moments. But at least in this passage, Judah was a liar. He was a dishonest man. Now, look with me at verse 15. The Bible says this. Now, remember what's happened. Tamar, seeing that there is no way she is going to be cared for, seeing that she has been lied to, and again, I'm not making excuses for her behavior. I believe her behavior was shameful and and, and displeased the Lord. But she, believing she has no other recourse, she puts off her widow's garb. She wraps herself in a veil. Now, most of the time when people wrap themselves and try to conceal, they have a reason for it. She wraps herself in a veil. She goes to where her father-in-law is, and the Bible says she sits by the roadside. Now, that may not mean much to you or me sitting here today, but at that time, it's apparent that this is a clear signal that she is a woman of ill repute, that she is a harlot, and that she is working, and that she is entertaining suitors. Verse 15 says this, 
When Judah saw her, he thought her to be an harlot because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. She said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it her and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. Now, when I read this passage of Scripture, I'm reminded that not only does dishonesty bring a stain onto our praise, but iniquity is a stain to our praise. Of all that he does in this passage, this is probably the most disturbing and the most shameful. I mean, this man is a son of Jacob. This man is a son of one of the patriarchs of the Old Testament. Jacob is not a man without a a, a, a cloudy past. Jacob is not a man that has not made mistakes. But surely you'd expect better of the son of Jacob than this behavior. I mean, this is a man who has means and, and has uh, all of the wealth and has all of the prowess and prestige that, that he could desire. No doubt the, the context to this is he was uh, newly widowed. His wife had passed. No doubt he could have gone and married another woman, but that's not what he was interested in. Instead, he goes and to his mind visits a harlot, a prostitute instead. Whatever good we can say about Judah, and I think there's much good we can say about him, we will always have to say this that he committed the grave sin of adultery, immorality, fornication, that he went in unto a harlot, and that harlot turned out to be his very daughter-in-law. Think about this, uh, th- th- this episode here. Think about, number one, how it corrupted him. Now, I would say this. Obviously, Tamar already thought this low of her father-in-law, or she would not have gone and done this in the first place. He had so wrecked his testimony before her that she was not surprised at all at the notion that he would go in unto a prostitute. But can I tell you whose testimony or in whose eyes Judah's testimony has eternally changed? And that's in the eyes of every single person that owns a King James Bible. We all read this passage and it overshadows, it eclipses everything else that the man said and that the man ever did. I'm glad we have a God of grace. I'm glad we have a God of second chances. But I think that part of the reason we live in such a permissive society as we do is because in preaching the grace of God, we have viewed it as something that is altogether restorative and in no way preventative. Can I tell you, the grace of God can restore you when you've made a mess of your life. But let me tell you a cooler trick the grace of God can do. It can keep you from making a mess of your life in the first place. I'm thankful for the grace of God. I'm thankful God was and and undoubtedly did. No doubt Judah, by the end of the passage, he is humbled. And no doubt he does go to the Lord and ask God's forgiveness. I like to think that he did. And if he did, I'll tell you this. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I, I believe with all my heart that the eternal record of heaven has no vestige of this shameful behavior. But the eternal Word of God does record for us that this happened... There's some things you can't undo. They corrupt your testimony. And there's certain things if you do in front of a broken world, they won't care what you say about God. And it's not just they won't care. They will judge poorly your God based upon what you say. I believe with all my heart that there's times that people get to a place where they do more shame to the name of Christ 
than they do glory. And I think God in His mercy will take them home at times. But, you know, think about the, the sad reality that our life could become so shameful that we're not even, that there's no potential for our life to bring any good praise on to God, but that all that it's done is corrupted us in the world's eyes. I see how it corrupted him. I, I see verse 16. I see what it cost him. She said, yes, what wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send him? Now, this is an obvious transaction that's happening. He would have been shocked if she hadn't asked for some form of payment. He believed he was going and visiting a prostitute. But here's what I want to point out to you. It cost him far more than he thought he was paying. He says, I'll pay a kid from the flock. By the way, let me just say this. That's always and forever been the price of our sin and the payment for our disobedience. It's always took the lamb to cover our sin. That's the price that was paid. But he was willing to pay that. Here's the problem. He wasn't walking around with some goats stuck in his wallet. And so she says, how do I know? How can I believe you? By the way, she knew he was a liar. So she said, how can I believe you? How can I know that you're going to pay me? And he says, well, what can I give you to, to secure this transaction? She says, I want you to give me your bracelets. I want you to give me your signet ring. I want you to give me your staff. In other words, there's what he was willing to pay. There's what he was asked to pay. But then before the close of the passage, when we consider it in light of of the shame it brought on him, there was what he did not even know he was paying. You know, every sin in our life has those three costs. For most of us, there's something we're willing to give up when we engage in sin. I mean, we're not we're not rank pagans staring up, worshiping the sun. We understand there's consequences. We understand there's right and there's wrong. And you and I, when we engage in sin, we do so knowing that it'll cost us something. But can I tell you this? It'll cost you more than than you think it will. It'll ask more of you than what you expected. And then let me go a step further. One day, in light of eternity, we will find out we paid a far steeper price than we ever even imagined. I see what it cost him. But then it's interesting to me. He said, what what pledge shall I give thee? And she said, thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it her and came in unto her and she conceived by him. It's interesting, we'll read here in a moment, that by the end of the passage, she winds up presenting these back to her father-in-law and revealing that she was the harlot that he had gone in unto. But stop and think about the choice that he's making. That signet didn't belong to nobody but Judah. That bracelet didn't belong to nobody but Judah. That staff didn't belong to nobody but Judah. All three of these objects are personally identifiable. It it, it would be the equivalent of if he gave his driver's license to her. Why did that hold currency? Here's what he was imagining. She knows if I don't pay her, she'll expose me. Think about not only how it corrupted him and what it cost him, but think about how it compromised him. Every sin we commit, somebody's got our signet ring out there. Somebody saw it. Everything we do wrong, somebody's got our bracelet out there. Somebody saw it. Everything we do wrong, hey, somebody's got our staff out there. Somebody knows. Somebody saw. And when we stand up and try to voice praise for God, try to have a testimony, try to live for Christ, we are always running the risk that someone will stand up with ring in hand and say, you're not what you say you are. I have proof of what you've done. It's interesting when you look at the life of David 
In the Bible, David's life likewise is marked by one grave sin or episode of sin in his life. And David committed many sins, just as you and I have. But the sin most people think of when we think of, of his lowest, most disreputable point was his, his uh, sin, his adultery with, with Bathsheba and his murdering of Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. But something we often don't think about. Do you remember how that happened? Do you remember that Uriah was set forth in the battle? David is the king. He's back at the palace in Jerusalem. And he sends word by a letter that Uriah himself carries. He sends it to Joab, his general. And in that letter, he tells Joab, when the battle is at its hottest part, put Uriah forward and then retreat from him so that he is slain on the battlefield. You know who also is interesting in your Bible? Joab, that general. You know what you'll find when you read through? Joab's kind of a rough cob. I mean, he's a rough character. And you'll find there's times he'll take liberties and say things to David that nobody would have said to David. There are times that that he would, would withstand David when nobody would withstand David. And there are times that he would do things contrary to, to David's wishes. You know, Joab almost acts like somebody that's got a little dirt on David. And we then ask this question, wonder whatever happened to that letter. Wonder who's got your letter. Wonder who's got your signet ring. Wonder who's got your bracelet and your staff. You know why it is so dangerous and we're all guilty of sin in our lives. I'm aware of that. But you know why it's so dangerous and we often don't even think about it to get involved with sin. It's not just the punishment that might come upon us. It's the way it compromises us before a lost and dying world. How are you going to witness those co-workers when they've seen you cuss like that? How are you going to witness those co-workers when they've seen you lie like that? How are you going to witness to those co-workers when they've heard you tell them filthy jokes like that? Oh, yeah, it's Thanksgiving. Let's all sit around. I'm so thankful. I'm thankful for my family and my dog and UT football. Oh, God's so good to me. But I wonder how many of those people that you're saying that to look at you and think, you say you're thankful. Why do you live and behave this way? I would say iniquity is a stain on our praise. But then we find, little time passes, Tamar has gone back home. She has not revealed to her father-in-law, to Judah, what she has done. She just goes back home, but she is with child. And as most of us that went to health class and, and were not propagandized to understand, uh, when a woman has a child, she's with child. By the way, your Bible doesn't use the term pregnant, it uses the term with child. Because that's what they are. If they're pregnant, they're with child. They're not with fetus. They're with child. That child begins to grow. And sooner or later, it gets sort of tough for her to hide the fact that she is with child. So one day, <laughs> word is sent. Well, I'll just read it to you. Let's let the Bible speak for itself. Verse 24. It came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot. And also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. Judah said, bring her forth and let her be burnt. Sounded like a good plan, didn't it? When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, discern, I pray thee, whose are these? The signet and bracelets and staff. You see, what you paid, what you invested, what you trusted to the devil will always come back in the end. And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shelah my son, and he knew her again no more. 
You know what's a stain on our praise? Dishonesty is a stain. I mean, it don't matter how loud we praise Him if we lie with the same lips. Iniquity is a stain on our praise. It don't matter how good we talk about Him being, if we don't show that through our love and devotion, the world doesn't care about it. But I would say this, cruelty is a stain on our praise. Stop and think about what He said. Bring her forth and let her be burnt. I'm aware there are times after the law was given in the Old Testament that a death penalty was prescribed for for behavior similar to this. I'm aware of that. But can I also remind you, the law hadn't been given yet. Judah wasn't doing this because he said, boy, I I don't want to do this, but this is what the God of Israel has commanded and we got to keep a pure nation and we got to do what's right. He's not doing this because of that. He's doing it because he is ashamed of her. He doesn't want to bring shame to himself. Stop and think about what he says. Bring her forth and let her be burnt. It ain't just her anymore. It's that baby inside of her. He was going to burn a pregnant woman alive because of the sin she had committed. Now, I'm not in any way trying to suggest that life doesn't have consequences. Of course it does. And I'm certainly not trying to suggest that God is unjust in some of the punishments he prescribed in his word. But I am saying this, that Judah, not acting under mandate from the Lord... This was a deep act of heartlessness. That was his daughter-in-law. I, I mean, I mean, she had married his son. They, listen, they they had they had had family holidays together. They 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 would have they, they would have been to you know uh, friends and, and and he would have seen her love and care for for his son, not just one son but two sons. But he has no care and concern for it. He says she did something wrong. Let's take her out and burn her to death. You know, one of the great shames, mm, this hard. You know, the world doesn't care how much we talk about the Lord if they don't see the love of Christ in us. Hardness. Cruelty. You know what I've found to be true in my life? I've found the easier I am on myself, the harder I am on others. And the harder I am on myself, the easier I am on others. And I will say that one of the testimonies of our life is not just the confession of our lips, but it's the compassion of our lives. It's the fact that we care about people. I, I, I mean, I, listen, I, I, wouldn't you think if Judah had to say this, it would have been with heart broken. That's his, that's his daughter-in-law. I, I mean, that, that, that could have been his grandchild. He would come to find out, in fact, it was his child. By the way, can I just, mm, I, mm, this ain't, search my notes, it ain't in there, but I believe the Lord wants me to say it. You know, sometimes people that we don't even intend get swept up in our hardness and cruelty. Had he gotten what he wanted, he would have burned his own child to death and not just her. Sometimes the hardness we show towards others winds up sweeping people in that we would never intended to be hard towards. I see it was a heartless decision, but not only was he heartless, he was a hypocrite. I don't know, man. I mean, I bet that felt good. If you were Tamar, when you walked in and tossed that ring and bracelet on that desk. I mean, I'm, there's just delicious moments you have in life and, and I, man, I bet that, I, man, I bet that felt good. You ever had somebody be rude to you to turn around to walk away, to walk right smack dab into a door? It just feels good. It's of the Lord. It's one of the gifts God, that's a God wink. <laughs> and man, I, I just, I would imagine it felt good when she threw those things up on that table. But imagine how it wounded Judah. 
There didn't need to be anything else said. When he saw that ring, all that needed to be said was said. And here's what he realized. Hard as he had been towards her, he was a hypocrite because he was guilty not just of that sin, but of even the sin of lying to her as well. You know, the problem with that hard attitude is sooner or later you're going to mess up. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have biblical standards, and I'm not saying we shouldn't we shouldn't esteem the 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 authority of God's word. And, and I'm, listen, I'm not. I'm just saying, you better. Hey, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You know why that is? Because sooner or later you're going to need mercy. And whatever else you say about the Lord and to the Lord and praise the Lord, if you don't evidence the love of Christ in your life, then you are a hypocrite of the highest rank. I see he was heartless. I see he was a hypocrite. But I see he was humbled. Verse 26, Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Sheila my son. And he knew her again no more. Stop and think about what he just said. She hath been more righteous than I. Now, if he had just said she hath been righteous, that wouldn't have been true. She hadn't been righteous. She had lied. She had deceived. She had committed adultery. She had played the harlot. She had done all those things. But Judah's statement doesn't stop by saying she's righteous. He said, she's more righteous than I am. You know what he learned? He learned that after all, the fellow that wouldn't show mercy needed mercy. And he learned after all that his cruelty and his heartlessness would come back in the end to bite him because of what he had done. He instead, the Bible says, knew her again no more. You know what that implies? He let her go. He let her free. You know why that is? Because if he was going to condemn her, he would have had to have condemned him. When we read in John chapter number 8, my pastor used to always ask this question. In John chapter number 8, whenever the woman is taken in adultery. And by the way, this isn't in any way being permissive about adultery or fornication. It's wicked. It's evil. God hates it. It wrecks homes and lives and and bodies and, 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 and children. It's a horrible thing. But my pastor used to always ask the question. They come to Jesus. They say, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And he used to always wonder two things. One, how'd they know where to find her in the very act? And two, where's the person she was in the act of it with? There's a good likelihood that that person was present that day in that crowd picking up stones. And whenever the Bible says he stooped down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and said, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. They were all, and by the way, this is the only time in your King James Bible the word convicted is found. They were convicted within themselves and went away till there was none left. You know why they is convicted? They is guilty of what she is guilty of. I, we, as preachers have speculated, I guess, since John finished pinning it down, what he wrote in the sand. I don't know. But what I do know is this. No matter what he wrote in the sand, their consciences spoke louder and condemned them and reminded them. Here's what I want for you this Thanksgiving season. You say, preacher, I guess I'll just hush and not praise God. No, you ought to get right and praise God. Listen, I don't say this to discourage you. And I don't say this to suggest that any of us is is, is without any sort of, of guilt or sin. I say this to say as we come to this Thanksgiving season, let it not just be a time when we sit around and talk about how good He is. Let it be a time when we show how good He is through a life surrendered unto Him. Let's bow together this morning. A musician's going to come and play. And I don't know what God may have spoken to your heart about. I'll make it easy for you. He may have not even spoken about you. He may have spoken about somebody that you know in your life that you're troubled over the way that they're living and behaving. 
Won't you come pray for them? And while you come, let me say, any and everybody whose heart has been touched, and, and there have been times it's been true of me, I've not done the things Judah did, not to the degree he did them. But I've certainly, there's been times I've been guilty of dishonesty, times that I've been guilty of iniquity. Oh, my soul, times that I've been guilty of cruelty. And if that's been true in your life, why don't you come and ask a gracious God to forgive you and to help you to have the mind and the heart of Christ. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus, we ask it in his name.